I lay in bed trying to sleep last night. Some things came to mind. I knew that with one exception, everything I was sharing with you today, it's all intertwined. An interesting question has been posed. What is Congress for? As I share this with you, Washington, D.C. is dealing with the fallout of two events in which two different groups of people had to answer that question. What is Congress for? One of these events came last week on February the 8th when the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Trump versus Anderson. In that case, a collection of Colorado activists asked the court to reaffirm the Colorado Supreme Court's decision to ban Donald Trump for running for re-election on the grounds that back in January of 2021 that Trump had committed insurrection against the U.S. The fact that the various criminal charges against Trump had not yet gone to trial was of little concern to them. Instead, they argued that because the 14th Amendment of the Constitution bars officers who have, quote, engaged in insurrection or rebellion from holding office again, judges should be able to remove an insurrectionist from the ballot as easily as they might remove a non-citizen or a candidate who has not reached the proper age. Now, Trump's defenders had a different argument. 
they said that power to enforce the 14th Amendment is given to Congress. In 1870, Congress enacted a law saying that U.S. district attorneys, by filing a legal motion called Quo Waranto, could ask federal judges to remove ex-Confederates from office. Later on, that law was repealed. And even if the Quo Waranto law was still in force, there's a big difference between a U.S. attorney, that's someone appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate, asking a judge to strip an accused insurrection of the right to run for office, and a group of private citizens doing the same thing. Ultimately, enforcement power for the 14th Amendment belongs to Congress, and if our country is serious about being a constitutional democracy, then Trump should be tried according to laws enacted by Congress or not at all. But fortunately, even liberal justices like Elena Kagan appeared skeptical of the arguments that Trump's enemies presented as they questioned the right of state judges acting on their own to disqualify candidates for national elections. And with Republican appointees having a 6-3 to three majority anyway, we can be virtually certain that justice will prevail. Is that true? Republican appointees having a 6-3 to three majority? Republican appointees where? On the Supreme Court? I don't know. But then you see there is bad news as well. Five days after the court heard the Anderson case, the House of Representatives voted by 214 to 213 to impeach Alejandro Mayorkas, the Biden administration's Secretary of Homeland Security. And yet the impeachment trial, if a trial is held at all, will be conducted in the Democrat Senate, which is virtually certain to acquit Mayorkas. House Republicans impeached Mayorkas for high crimes and misdemeanors due to his deliberate non-enforcement of several immigration laws. And Mayorkas' level of non-enforcement goes well beyond what Americans are already used to in just three years under Biden. Well in excess of 10 million illegal invaders have entered this country, about the same number as we were living here when Biden took office. And all throughout the impeachment proceedings, Democrats have kept pointing to all the constitutional law experts who were on their side. And they cited letters like this one, signed by a host of famous law professors, including Lawrence Tribe, that read in part, The Constitution forbids impeachment based on policy disagreements between the House and the executive branch, no matter how intense or high stakes those differences of opinion. But you see, my friends, it is the deliberate reinforce non-enforcement of laws that Congress has enacted a mere policy disagreement. Is Congress a mere ceremonial body whose enactments are advisory opinions that the executive and the judiciary may follow or ignore as they please? Or was Congress made for something bigger? James Madison and other men who wrote the Constitution seem to be of the latter opinion. And that is why, after debating whether to have impeachments tried by a group of judges, that's the nearest thing to law experts that existed back then, and the Philadelphia Convention discarded the idea and decided that only the House and Senate 
like Britain's House of Parliament before them, should be involved in impeachments. Would this mean that impeachment would be a political act and that some cases would end up being decided by party-line votes? Well, yes, it would. And the founders knew well that any constitution is open to abuses, but at the end of the day, governing a country is a political business. And unless the executive and judiciary are somehow made accountable for serious abuses of their power to the people's elected representatives, we don't really live under a government of the people any longer, do we? When the convention debated the proper grounds for impeachment, some of its members were in favor of treason and bribery alone. But then George Mason of Virginia stood up and said that, well, treason will not reach many great and dangerous offenses. Hastings was not guilty of treason. Well, that comment was enough to make the other men in the room think twice. You see, Warren Hastings, the former governor general of India, was at that time being tried in the British Parliament in what was perhaps the most infamous impeachment trial ever. And that prosecution was led by one Edmund Burke, a statesman universally admired in the former American colonies. But Hastings, along with Elijah Impey, the colonial chief justice, was not charged with any crimes of the ordinary sort. Hastings and Impey had taken no bribes, committed no acts of treason, and obstructed no legal proceedings. They were simply accused of governing Britain's new Indian territories in an excessively violent manner, of seizing Indians' property without a sound basis in law. And in Hastings' case of leasing soldiers to an Indian potentate for his brutal and unnecessary war against the neighboring kingdom of Rohilikand. Well, the founders, a bit flummoxed that they had almost written a constitution that would have let Hastings off the hook, added, quote, other high crimes and misdemeanors to the grounds for impeachment. And thus they thought was broad enough to cover any serious breach of the public trust, any conduct of Congress deemed especially subversive of the written laws and Constitution. You see, that to me makes it simple. Mayorkas has committed other high crimes and misdemeanors. The man has done nothing to protect this nation. But that the founders expected Congress to impeach for political reasons is made clear in the Federalist Number 81, in which Hamilton, in order to rebut anti-Federalist claims that the new judiciary would be too powerful, said the following. There never can be danger that the judges, by a series of deliberate usurpations on the authority of the legislature, would hazard the united resentment of the body entrusted with it while this body was possessed by, of the means of punishing their presumption by degrading them from their stations. Well, since Hamilton had already written in Federalist Number 65 that impeachment was to be a bridle in the hands of the legislative body upon the executive, now we could be certain that the idea applies just as well to executive officials like Mayorkas as it does to the judiciary. And if they try to usurp Congress's role, then Congress needs a means to strike back. And the Constitution provides such a means. And so you see, it has, alas, seldom been used. 
Nearly all the impeachments of judges have been for bribery, graft, and in the early days, drunkenness on the bench. The last judge to be impeached over constitutional issues with was, was one James H. Peck, H. Peck, who in 1826 jailed a lawyer for contempt of court after the lawyer published an anonymous newspaper editorial criticizing one of his rulings. Judge Peck was acquitted by the Senate, though shortly afterward, Congress, in order to prevent a repeat of the situation, passed a law restricting the use of contempt rulings. So the last political impeachment of any sort was that of one President Andrew Johnson. Impeached in 1867 by Congress's radical Republicans for willful violations of the Tenure of Office Act. And Johnson, after arguing that the act was unconstitutional, escaped conviction by one vote. And a century later, when the country finally saw a president forced out of office under the threat of impeachment, it was Richard Nixon's minor role in the Watergate cover-up that brought him down. Not his lies to Congress about the progress of the Vietnam War or his invasion and bombing of Cambodia without legal authorization. And yet the latter was much more destructive of the constitutional order. But the failure of 20th and 21st century Congress to take their own powers seriously has led to elected representatives playing a smaller and smaller role in how America is actually governed. Think of the great constitutional questions of the last 60 years or so. Questions like whether to create and later do away with the right to abortion. Whether the 14th Amendment calls for the redefinition of marriage. Whether constitutional provisions created to establish equality of the races should also require equality of the sexes. Whether capital punishment should be abolished. And to what extent federal judges should be involved in the administration of public schools. My friends, these questions have nearly all been decided solely by judges and lawyers. Not by ordinary citizens debating constitutional amendments. And then, through their representatives, deciding whether to enact them. The way that their grandparents had decided questions like the income tax and women's suffrage and prohibition. And yet the latter is no better at the statutory level. Just consider Title IX, 1972 law that requires that most educational programs be equally open to both sexes. And since most people who hear the phrase Title IX do so when dealing with one of the huge and expensive bureaucracies that America's universities have created to comply with this law, one might be forgiven that thinking that Title IX's texts require the universities to create them. Actually, it did nothing of the sort. The regulations requiring the bureaucracies are the work of officials within the Office of Civil Rights, not of Congress. And the same is true of the elaborate parallel court systems the Obama administration demanded that universities use to punish people of sexual harassment. You see, at every step, the bureaucrats involved claim to merely be clarifying existing laws or regulations, and the federal courts help them along by giving private individuals the right to file lawsuits under Title IX. 
despite the law's text granting enforcement power only to the Department of Education. One of the more extreme judicial findings was that if a college's male students participate in sports at a higher rate than females, the school is ipso facto discriminatory and must remedy the situation by either cutting popular boys' sports like wrestling or lavishing money on girls' sports until more girls sign up. But then you see, obviously, none of this would have become law if it had to go through Congress first. But in a country where bureau rats and judges can usurp Congress's powers without the slightest risk of blowback, such things are par for the course, my friends. The plain fact is that the House and Senate are both well on their way to becoming ceremonial bodies, party seekers. They become much like the Roman Senate after the Principate was established or the British House of Lords is today. During the Revolutionary War, when American diplomats met with their French counterparts, they often honored the French with toasts like Vive le Roy. And the Frenchman replied with uh, Vive le Congress. Because everybody knew who was going to have the chief role in governing America if the Americans succeeded in their quest to establish a new republic. But you see, nowadays, it seems that most Americans have forgotten what that war was all about. And the fact that Mayorkas impeachment passed the House by only one vote and is dead on arrival in the Senate does not bode well for our country's future. Basically, about half the members of Congress are saying that it's okay for a cabinet secretary to nullify immigration laws and let 10 million foreigners illegally enter the United States so long as he's acting in service of ideology rather than doing it for a bribe. And nor is the House's refusal to even try to impeach Anthony Fauci in face of abundant evidence that he had lied about gain-of-function research, a cause for confidence in the institutions of government. And so events like Trump's Supreme Court win show that liberty in America is not is quite as dead as some people wish it were. But my friends, if this country is ever going to regain the democratic form of government for which earlier generations fought and bled, it's going to happen only when our elected representatives wake up, shake off their fear of confronting the other branches of government, and remember what Congress is for. And that is a story unto itself. It's sickening. It is oh so profound. All I want to know is what the hell's going on. It's all pure insanity. Is it not? So we submit a question to you for your consideration. Why does it seem like most members of Congress are either stupid, rapacious, or both? Given the wholesale disaster that has been this Biden residency, one has to wonder how it all happened. We have all watched the Democratic Party become radicalized, almost purely Marxist, since the Obama administration. 
Obama promised to transform the country, and he certainly did. He effectively drove race relations backward by 70 years. And if you think that Obama is not deeply involved with our president, so-called resident, which is quite interesting because it was quite common knowledge that Obama despised his vice president, Biden. Why Biden was chosen to be the VP in the first place is anyone's guess. Biden has always been known as a jerk, a racist. His mentor was KKK member aficionado Robert Byrd. Biden's always known to be rather dumb, a plagiarist, a pathological liar. For years, he told the story that his first wife was killed by a drunk driver, which was never true. The accident was her fault, and the truck driver was not intoxicated. Biden always enjoyed humiliating Clarence Thomas throughout Thomas's confirmation hearings when, in fact, Biden is not fit to shine Thomas's shoes. But the question remains, with a president so obviously an intellectual lightweight, to say the least, a man who is now obviously suffering from advanced dementia, how is it that Biden has been able to do so much damage to this nation? The simple answer. The Democrat members of Congress are stupid and greedy and addicted to power. It's more important to them to retain that power than it is for them to do the right thing. Adding insult to injury, most Republicans are equally self-serving and incompetent. And those with both brains and the courage of their convictions can be counted on two hands. The rest do as much harm to the country as the Democrats. Biden's list of failures is long and well-known. From the Afghan withdrawal to provoking Putin to invade Ukraine, to interfering with Israel's war against Hamas, these are just some of the lowlights. But the biggest and most egregious catastrophe is the open border, his standing invitation to any or all foreigners who can afford to make the trip. Oh, they all pay the cartels and the coyotes. This nation has been invaded. Our demographics permanently altered by perhaps as many as 10 million unvetted persons from 170 different countries. New York City and Chicago have been destroyed. Denver, a sanctuary city, has been overrun. It's hospital in complete breakdown mode. Most homes and ranches on the border have been ruined. Homeowners find dead bodies on their land. And if they defend themselves against criminal migrants, it's the homeowner who gets arrested. Yet you didn't know this stuff, did you? Well, wake up, folks, because the world is upside down. Our legal system is upside down. It's backwards. It's corrupt. The left wants and has generated total chaos throughout the land. And how have they done it? Our leadership 
members of Congress. Much of our judiciary is thoroughly corrupt. They all use their power to advance their political agenda without regard for the law. And the absurd political persecutions of Trump prove that. They vote to fund wars because they get rich when there's war. Democrats want the open border because they want more Democrat voters. They do not distinguish between legal and illegal. The Constitution no longer means one damn thing to the left, nor does it to the rhinos who are Democrats like. They vote for what benefits them, not for what is right for the American people. The so-called border bill passed in the Senate proves that. It all merely codifies what has been going on for at least three years. Thousands of illegals crossing the border each and every day. And that bill is an insult to the U.S. citizens. And it assumes that we're all morons. The bill just included more millions of dollars for processing those thousands of illegal migrants that they are admitting. But the left has nothing but contempt and fury for those who do not support the open border. They want cheap labor. The latest job report shows that all the new jobs have gone to foreigners. But the Democrats at least present a united front. They vote how they're told to vote. Oh, they'd be sorely punished if they failed to do as they were told. The Republicans, on the other hand, the majority of them, they're weak-willed, easily manipulated, think that virtue signaling is one of the greatest character traits. And the few who voted not to impeach the odious Mayorkas are idiot virtue signals, signalers. The man has flagrantly flaunted the immigration laws on the books. They vote against any definition of common sense and claim they are the righteous ones. And they are pathetic, as are the 22 Republican senators who voted for spending another $95 billion, $66 billion of which goes to Ukraine. And I'd like to say God bless those who voted against it. The money doesn't exist. It's going to have to be borrowed or printed, added to the 34 plus trillion dollars the U.S. already owes. And they all know this. They all know that Zelensky's a fraud, a tool of to the oligarchs, and the Ukraine has lost the war that never should have begun. The only explanation for their votes is personal gain. Because clearly none of them are good enough at math, despite their Ivy League educations. Meanwhile, the value of the dollar is falling fast. The BRICS countries are fast devaluing American currency. Every one of those 22 Republicans is a traitor to their constituents. American tax dollars are pouring into projects that only harm Americans and help migrants and criminals who are allowed to roam the streets to shoplift, to freely commit violent crimes for which they suffer no consequences. That's the game the Democrats play. And there's not enough courageous Republicans to thwart them. And yet we, the American people, will continue to 
elect these thieving, lying sons of bucks. You see, the obvious reason that members of Congress vote the way they do is when it's counter to what their constituents want. Is that they are paid. Paid by donors, by lobbyists, by other special interest groups or individuals. Oh, Soros once again comes to mind. Everyone knows that Mitch McConnell's a Chinese asset due to his Chinese wife's family shipping business. And with Joey Biden, that relationship has made him very rich. Likely a similar story to one extent or another for each member of Congress who votes for himself or herself without a thought for the people that they are there to represent. Nothing else explains the terrible damage done these past three years. Who are the good guys? Maybe Senator Ron Johnson, Rand Paul, Ted Cruz, Jim Jordan, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, Matt Rosendale, Representative Eli Crane, Senator Blackburn, Representative Andy Biggs. There may be more, but these are the ones who are unafraid to speak for the people. These are the members who are generally mocked and derided by the mainstream media for being, wait for it, (laughs) right-wing radicals. But you see, they are the members of Congress who can do the math and know that the irresponsible spending has to stop or this country will be economically over. You see... Because there has been no audit. No one really knows how the billions already handed over to the Ukraine were spent. We do know that the corrupt oligarchs there, Biden's pals, have purchased mansions in Russia and Egypt and yachts that are docked in Monte Carlo. There's even rumors that the weapons sent are being sold on the black market throughout Europe. And we know there's bio labs there and that orphaned children are being trafficked. Why then do so many members of Congress want to send more billions to a lost cause? (laughs) It is a mystery. But arrogance, stupidity, and greed seem more like the answers, don't they? Yeah. It's crazy. We really have no real say as to how our government runs, how our taxpayer funds are being used, but none of this matters. It doesn't prevent the government from policing us at every turn, forcing us to pay for endless wars that do more to fund the military-industrial complex than protect us. And let's not forget the pork barrel projects that produce little or nothing in a police state that serves only to imprison us within its walls. The financial tyranny persists, whether it's a Democrat or a Republican at the helm. At a time when the government is spending money it doesn't have on programs it cannot afford, the national debt continues to grow. Our infrastructure continues to deteriorate. Our borders continue to be breached. My God, people, what the hell is going on? This government of the people, by the people, and for the people has been overtaken by a shadow government. A corporatized, militarized, entrenched global bureaucracy that is fully operational and running this country. 
and this powerful international cabal made up of international government agencies and corporations is just as real as the corporatized, militarized, industrialized American deep state and poses just as great a threat to our rights as individuals under the U.S. Constitution, if not greater. Clearly, if you don't get it, we have entered into a new world order. This is fascism on a global scale. It remains unclear whether America's deep state, you know, that's a national security apparatus that holds sway even over the elected leaders nationally in charge of it. Maybe they answered a global deep state. Or whether the global deep state merely empowers the American deep state. However, there's no denying the extent to which they're intricately and symbiotically enmeshed and interlocked. Consider the extent to which our lives and liberties are impacted by this international convergence of governmental and profit-driven corporate interest in the surveillance state, the military-industrial complex, the private prison industry, the intelligence sector, the security sector, technology sector, the telecommunications sector, transportation sector, and in recent years, the pharmaceutical health sector. All of these sectors are dominated by mega corps operating on a global scale, working through government channels to increase their profits. And the profit-driven policies of these global corporate giants influence everything from legislative policies to economics to environmental issues to medical care. Things like COVID-19, that pandemic Pulled us into a, propelled us into a whole new global frontier in which those hoping to navigate this interconnected and highly technological world of contact tracing, vaccine passports, digital passes, find themselves grappling with issues that touched on deep-seated moral, political, religious, and personal questions for which there may be no clear-cut answers. And our ability to access and engage and move about in the world has now become dependent upon which camp we fall into. Those who've been vaccinated against whatever the powers that be deemed to be the latest disease X versus those who have not. And I've not been vaccinated. All of this is insane, people. We're dealing with global surveillance, spearheaded by the National Security Agency, which has shown itself to care little for constitutional limits or privacy. The surveillance state has come to dominate our government and our lives. And yet the government does not operate alone. It cannot. It requires an accomplice. And thus the increasingly complex security needs of our massive federal government, especially in the areas of defense, surveillance, and data management have been met within the corporate sector, which has shown itself to be a powerful ally that both depends on and feeds the growth of governmental bureaucracy. AT&T is a perfect example. Through its vast telecommunications network that crisscrosses the globe, AT&T provides the U.S. government with the complex infrastructure it needs for its mass surveillance programs. 
now magnify what the U.S. government's doing through AT&T on a global scale, and you've got what we call the 14 Eyes program, also referred to as the SIGINT Seniors. Global spy agency made up of members from around the world, the U.S., the United Kingdom, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, Denmark, France, Netherlands, Norway, Germany, Belgium, Italy, Sweden, Spain. Let's not forget Israel. Singapore, South Korea, Japan, India, and all of the British overseas territories. It's simple. Surveillance is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to these global alliances. It is simply appalling, my friends. How can people not get it it's like the closing commentary of our last column we shared with you it's all a mystery but arrogance, stupidity and greed seem most likely the answers think about it in those terms is it not appalling to you And then we face the crucible. I'm aware that retirement offers me the luxury of keeping myself attached to a pillow, my eyes closed, drifting in and out without caring to which number of that clock the shorthand is crawling. The problem is, though, my friends, that over the course of all these years, these 70-some-odd years I've been on this earth, I've developed the impossible to break the habit of getting up early, despite the fact that I no longer have a proverbial time card to punch. Sun up or not, when that hour comes, I swing my feet over the side of the bed, onto the floor stand as noiselessly as my creaking knees will allow and very quietly so as not to awaken my still dreaming wife I navigate down the hall and into what we call the back bedroom there I have access to two drawers and three feet of closet space not being used for seasonable storage which hold a few pair of well-worn old jeans a small folded stack of t-shirts, sweatshirts, good just for hanging out. My problem is, is that I rarely sleep with my wife. Most times she's up earlier than I am going to work. I'm having a difficult time sleeping. Think about all that we've discussed this nearly two hours on the air today. I couldn't shut my brain down for thinking about every bit of it last night. Interspersing, intermixing. But take a look at my room, my so-called back bedroom. Look around, you'll see all the furniture you might expect to find in what used to be teenage sleeping quarters, occupied at some time or another by our son, or a daughter. Headboard is flanked by a pair of 
bedside tables, each holding a small lamp. There's a dresser, a juvenile desk with a cushioned stool for a chair, a mirror behind the door, bookshelves, lots of bookshelves. But they were never filled with classical tomes. No Cyrano de Bergerac. Whether they were stuffed with cheesy paperbacks, a long line of horrible horror movies on videotape, rows and rows of grunge rock CDs. Unless it was during school hours or when it was functioning as the bedroom it was intended to be, the space was really quiet. No, instead it morphed into an after-class or a weekend clubhouse, not only for our brood, but their friends from school on the block. I guess they'd be chilling, you'd call it, and playing games, listening to Kurt Cobain-esque music, talking about the kids in their class who were dopes, you know, that kind of stuff. Room full of noise, full of life, full of energy. Until it wasn't. Until they both at one time either went off to college or moved from an apartment downtown or left to take a job elsewhere. Or just because they wanted to get away from mom and dad and get out on their own two feet. And in all of this is still crowded with memories. The room became barren of spirit. The bed went and slept in. The desk held no schoolwork. And the bookshelves? I've got stuff in here, too. Don't kid yourself. But not for long, because an empty shelf begs for attention. Becomes just too damned inviting to ignore. And so, that's slowly at first. Then with increasing purpose, the school kid inventory began to be replaced by framed photographs. Dozens of them. The room once again found itself filled with people. Some pictures were very new, or children, grandchildren, bright with colors. Others came from dusty box at the bottom of a dusty basement closet where a century or more old, no longer even black and white, faded to light, dark grays. Grandparents, mine, Italian immigrants born in the hills south of Naples, my wife's whose ancestors derived her generations earlier from Ireland, although in my wife's case, hers from her parents from Ukraine. Well, Having just finished dressing on a recent Friday morning, I found myself sitting at the foot of the bed pursuing those, perusing those shelves, alternately marveling at the lifelike prints of our grandkids, appearing almost three-dimensional in clear plastic displays, smaller, flat, colorless photos of our grandparents, some in hundred-year-old frames. Then at some point, and for no particular reason, my mind began to set aside the, the changes in camera technology drift into the changes between the country those kids may be destined to grow up in and the one in which our parents already did. How eerie it seemed that the contemplation of cultural and economic differences on such a scale could be triggered by some ordinary pictures on an ordinary shelf in an ordinary bedroom. But there it was, looking at two Americas, I've been forced to face the frightening reality that the stiff-standing subjects in those dark, monochronic portraits had something a hundred years ago that those smiling 21st century children may not. 
our parents, our grandparents had freedom. And even though there was nothing to help them survive with their own muscles and their own brains, they were free. If they failed to find steady work, there would be no escaping the tenements. They were not bust-in border crossers provided with accommodations in a formerly fine hotel in Times Square paid for by overburdened taxpayers. Hell no! They lived in blocks and blocks of overpopulated flats, their life's necessity self-funded. With path upward, their path upward, unencumbered by a bloated bureaucracy, their ambitions were uninhibited. You see, if the immigrants of the Woodrow Wilson era did not work, they did not eat. Compare this with New York City Mayor Eric Adams' announcement that illegals would be supplied with reloadable prepaid credit cards for use in bodegas and supermarkets. All of this makes my head shake. Think about my grandparents consuming so many meatless meals, not out of any dietary constraint or unrestrainable love of pasta, but because they simply could not afford the meat. There was no government supply of housing, child care, food, clothing, and cash. They were forced to suffer and struggle to earn those things for themselves and their offspring. And still would rather be nowhere else but in these United States because here they were here free. You know, there was a play written by Israel Zangwill, first staged in 1908, called The Melting Pot. And in the play, stories of a poor Jewish immigrant proclaiming that, understand that America is God's crucible, the great melting pot where all the races of Europe are melting and reforming. And here you stand, good folk, think I, when I see them in Ellis Island. Here you stand in your 50 groups, your 50 languages and histories, and your 50 blood hatreds and rivalries. But you won't be like that long, brothers. For these are the fires of God you've come to. These are the fires of God. A fig for your feuds and vendettas. Germans and Frenchmen, Irishmen and English, Jews and Russians, into the crucible with you all. God is making American. And so he did. Emerging from that crucible, my friends, were the men and women that we look at in those hundred-year-old photographs. The men and women who would protect their new country with their lives. And yet out of that melting pot came new Americans who continued to make the sacrifices, do the work, fight the battles needed to keep this nation great. What in the hell happened? And then as our author stood up, he realized how afraid I was of the damage that can still be done by those who are running and bent on ruining this country from the White House. And who knows who they are? As we saw brutally confirmed the other evening, it is certainly not the man who was inaugurated three years ago. But we are not blind. And we see what they have done. They have opened the gates wide to those who rush in, but who are interested in that crucible for one reason, and one reason only. To pour water into it. And to extinguish the fires of God.
Frank Santarpia. What a powerful, powerful piece of writing. Man. An interesting hour. There are other pieces I've not completed, but I have interspersed segments of them. New column I've got published at Federal Observer called The Global Deep State, a fascist world order funded by the American taxpayer. How many pieces of his intertwine with other pieces? The piece I just shared with you called The Crucible. For those of you who are of a similar age to myself, maybe younger, maybe older, and I know for a fact that I do have some people who are older than I that listen to this network, listen to this program, and you begin to realize the similarities we all have the things that we are able to share, the experiences that we've had, those of us who grew up with grandparents, many who were first, second, or even third generation grandparents, On one of my websites, metropolis.cafe, I have two sections dealing with some of my ancestors. One who goes back to the era of the Civil War. Another that goes back to, shall we call it, the Second Coming after the Mayflower. The story of David Selak, or could be Selak, or I've seen it spelled Selik. There's also a piece of a man who I never knew, but My grandfather did. Of course, I can't find it right now just because I want to find it that quickly. <laughs> Where is it? Where is it? No, I can't find it. Last name is Cole. I can't think of his first name right now. These are some of my ancestors. Samuel W. Cole. 95th Illinois Inventory uh, Infantry enlisted August 13th 1862 it's profound to find this kind of stuff hmm. unreal 
Samuel William Cole was my, in effect, my great-great-grandfather. I never knew or met him. Passed on in 1926. I wasn't born for another, which is interesting. That's uh, the year before my mother was born. <laughs> wow. Profound to come across all of this stuff. Just unbelievable. The things that we've witnessed, the things that we've grown up with, the things that we've seen, the things that we have lost is so profound. Not just family. It's everything that we have witnessed. All that we have lost. Will we gain any of it back? I'd like to hope and pray that we do. But reality says there's a good chance we won't. Far few people understand what many of us see and witness each and every day and are aware of. I guess a lot of people just don't care. They're too entertained with stupid ball and the nightly news and the music and God knows what else. I have little time for it all. It's time for me to go. I thank you for having the patience to tolerate me my anger tonight I didn't do this out of anger I do it to share without apology I am Jeffrey Bennett good night do you think we have time these are the days of the open hand we will not be the last Look around now These are the days of the beggars and the choosers This is the era of the hungry man Whose place is in the past Hand in hand with the girls and legitimate Excuses The rich declare themselves poor and most of us are not sure If we have a too much But we're taking our chances Say I sang 20 years and a day But nothing changed The human race Found some other guy And walked into the flame It's hard to love so much to hate Hanging on to hope When there is no hope to speak out In the wounded skies above Say it's much too late Then maybe we should all be praying 
right to tell us what has happened for them since starting Extendivite. Allow me to read a few. After taking Extendivite for about six months, I've noticed improvement on the numbness of my hands and wrists from the carpal tunnel syndrome. I will continue to buy product. This formula is very powerful. I am feeling much better. My heart rate and blood pressure is stabilized. My lower edema has reduced and lower leg pain due to blood clots has disappeared. This product has relieved what appears to be an angina problem, pain in the chest after climbing stairs and short on breath. I'm quite happy about it. To order, call 1-877-928-8822 or visit extendivite.com. That's X-T-E-N-D-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Extend your life with Extendivite. This is RBN, the Republic Broadcasting Network.